Welcome to episode two of Wellness World with Carly Lockman. Just to give you a little context, we are on week 10 of our COVID-19 shelter in place order here in Southern California, and I am 35 weeks pregnant with baby number three. So it has been an interesting time to say the least, and there have definitely been some unique anxieties that have come up for me as a result of all of the uncertainty happening right now. Uh, but overall, I'm doing okay. And I'm really using this time, this last few weeks, to be very serious and intentional about preparing for postpartum. So I'm making all of my freezer meals. I am coordinating any kind of care or services that I will need postpartum as much as that's possible within the context of a shelter in place order. And I'm also really trying to rest and listen to my body as much as I can. Today's episode is an interview with Alyssa Carey, someone I admire very much. She is a holistic nutrition practitioner, a cancer survivor and educator, and most recently, she's a new mom. This interview took place a few weeks before her baby was born, and it chronicles her journey of being pregnant very shortly after finishing cancer treatment. Alyssa totally defied the odds in terms of post-cancer treatment fertility, and I think you'll find her story to be really inspiring. Alyssa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for Thank being here. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm actually really excited for this talk. Pumps yeah. me up. Yeah. So tell us about your background and how you got into doing the work that you do as a nutrition consultant and personal trainer. Yeah. So I actually have like so many roads that kind of tangled in together at the same time. It kind of just one on one layer on top of another, but it all started in my last year of college. I was studying um, nutrition, I mean, <laughs> nutrition, environmental science. And I realized that the best way to help the earth is to help the people on it um, feel better, healthier, make more choices. Um, a lot of choices that people don't even know that are out there. Um, and at the same time, I also had just ended my career as a junior Olympic softball player. So I was like, I need some type of fitness outlet. So then I started CrossFit and um, eventually I just went to Olympic lifting, which I still do now, which is just uh, snatch and clean and jerk and um, kind of like accessory work. And then I, in my nutrition school, I really wanted to, also helped my grandma with her diabetes, which I reversed in three months, by the way. That's amazing. <laughs> yep. And so she was my first client. And in school, we had to go out into the world and do what they call a portfolio, where we had to teach uh, six weeks of free classes. And obviously, I picked the gym because that's kind of like where my life fit in. And they actually hired me on the spot when I finished up this free um, workshop that I put on and it was a health club. And so I eventually worked my way up to being the nutrition director there. And 
they were like, you know what, we really would like you to also do personal training because I was competing in uh, Olympic weightlifting. I was competing nationally at the time before oh, wow. I, didn't I was diagnosed. <laughs> yeah. And um, how old were you then? I was, let's see. Uh, how old am I now? I just turned 28. Seven, six, five, five, about 22, 23. Okay. Yeah. And um, probably 23. And so that way I could help I would fill in a gap that they had because they were mostly cardio-based and workout machines. And I was bringing kind of this new knowledge of strength training. I wasn't necessarily teaching Olympic lifting, but more... Um, strength training and hit stuff and um, people really liked it. So that's kind of how my whole world kind of came together. And I did that for several years until recently. Nice. Yeah. So kind of getting into the meat of our discussion today at 26 years old, you were diagnosed with cancer, uh, lymphoma specifically. Mm-hmm. What was going on prior to your diagnosis and were there any tip-offs that something was wrong? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I've connected with some other people online about kind of like what was going on in their life at this time and kind of the overarching theme has been it's been the busiest time of our lives where we're not taking care of ourselves Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what was happening to me. I was I was just in my first semester of culinary school because I wanted to kind of up my game in that since I didn't grow up cooking or knowing how to cook, I wanted to give my clients some good information. I was the director for nutrition. I was doing personal training. I also was living on an acre doing a little homestead chicken farm (laughs) and I was competing nationally. And so I was basically up at 5 a.m. and I was getting home around 10, 10 10.30 p.m. And um, it was extremely stressful time in my life. And I was living in a tiny home as well with my uh, boyfriend at the time. Um, We're married now. We're not, just to make that clear. But but actually about a year, maybe two years before that, something else that was kind of, should have been a red flag to me, especially kind of going through all of nutrition, holistic nutrition school, is I developed um, food allergies to some really interesting things, fruits and vegetables, carrots, celery, um, apples, pears, nectarines. I was sitting in class when I was in nutrition school, actually, and I was eating a nectarine, and I just felt my lips, like, swell up. And I went, I went to the bathroom, and I was like, oh, my God, it looks like I just had a really bad Botox injection. It was, and it was very, it was painful. It was burning. Um, And then the next thing that happened was carrots and my throat actually closed. Um, And so I have an, now I have anaphylactic reactions to these foods still. And so that, you know, definitely was a red flag. Like, Hey, you know, something's going on with your immune system, but um, never would think that, a year or two later that that red flag could have been, Oh, Hey, you know, something yeah. really, really, really going wrong. Yeah. That is really interesting though. I mean, those are really significant reactions when you've never had reactions to those foods no. before. And I have no 
allergic reactions my entire life to anything, mm-hmm. um, not pet dander, not environmental factors. Um, I always thought growing up that I was so lucky because everyone had allergies and I was like, ha ha, you know, right. <laughs> but um, it caught up with me eventually with food, with good food too. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember also hearing about at some point, and I think this, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this was your reasoning for actually going in to get checked out. You developed some kind of a mass on your, on your neck or your clavicle. What was that about? Yeah. So I, it was actually, um, July of 2018. I developed, um, a mass like right above above my clavicle, there's a host of lymph nodes right there. And um, it was about, if you were to cut like a softball in half and stick it on my neck, that's kind of what it looked like. It wasn't painful. It wasn't hard. It was just kind of like touching skin that was a huge mess. And I actually didn't even notice it until I went into work. And um, one of my co I used to wear... Uh, tank tops to work. And my coworker was like, are you like doing extra trap workouts? Like what is going on? (laughs) And because it was so huge and we were just like, what? And he took a picture of it and it was just, um, I don't even know how I missed it in the morning, probably because I was living in a a tiny house with a miniature mirror to look at. But um, it was it didn't really cross my mind that it was anything serious. You know, the people that I was working with were like, oh, you know, you probably have some fluid in your lymph nodes or, you know, you just need a lymph node massage. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, I'm not worried about it at all. Um, If your followers are familiar with Enneagram, I'm Enneagram 7. So I'm a very like, la-di-da-di-da. What's a good daydreamer? And so it, I really didn't connect that it could be something serious. Mm-hmm. Um, I waited about three days and then I went to, I tried to find somewhere that could give me imaging. Um, I also didn't have insurance at the time. So I was trying to put it off and like, oh, maybe it'll go away. And eventually I did have to go to the ER because that's the only place that would give me imaging. Um, without having insurance or that actually had what they wanted to do. And they um, they gave me some scans. They gave me a bunch of blood work. And about 18 hours later, they were like, you look great. We don't know what's wrong with you. We're going to send you to a specialist, um, but you have to get insurance first before they'll see you. So then um, they let me go. And they said I was fine. I'm healthy. young. I was 26 and that I should have nothing to be worried about. That and was my this, first experience. And, yeah. And at this point, I mean, you're believing that, right? Right. Not totally. At all. Okay. And so what was the specialist that they referred you to? That was, um, they sent me to, um, a blood specialist and I put this in quotes because I didn't even look into what that really meant. I had no idea (laughs) what it meant. And um, it took me about um, three weeks to get insurance. 
um, thankfully I did and they retroed it back so I didn't have to pay for that ER visit. <laughs> but um, when I finally got the insurance and they were able to see me, I'm driving up to see this blood specialist and I pull up to this building that has huge sign across it. This is cancer center. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I was just kind of like in shock. And I, I was like, oh, maybe they just need to send me here for specific blood work that they can only do. Like it still wasn't, uh, I just wasn't accepting it, I guess. And cause I just kept hearing you're so young and so healthy. Like you do this and do that. And, you know, I was literally the healthiest person that I know <laughs> eating a holistic diet and working out and doing all the things. But, um, uh, she ended up sitting me down in the office and she was like, I'm not sure why they said this to you, but it is 90% conclusive that you have lymphoma just from my blood work. Wow. Yeah. And I was just, I was in shock and I just started, I just started crying and I'm like, I don't know why I said this. I think I was just kind of like trying to um, mitigate the conversation, I was like, wow, you have a really shitty job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's pretty much all I said in between crying. And she was like, wow, like, I'm, she was just like, you, I really want, she really wanted me to go to um, UCSF, which is the San Francisco and she was thinking that maybe I could get better treatment there rather than my local place um, in Northern California's. But um, she was thinking maybe they could give me better fertility options. But I think really the only better thing that I got that I might not have gotten is I got a port, um, which is really helpful for saving your veins going through chemotherapy if you okay. go through enough treatments. Um, and, and you were you were alone when you received this diagnosis because yeah. it was not even in the realm of possibility mm -mm. for you that you could be receiving some kind of extreme diagnosis. You thought this was going to be some kind of a routine check. Yeah, I was totally, I was <laughs> totally alone and had no idea. I, honestly, I've, you know, I've been asked like, what did you do after? And I honestly have no idea what I did after this appointment. I don't know if I went home, I don't know if I like drove around like crying. I just, it's totally gone from my memory. And I think that's kind of just the way that I process yeah, being alone I, like that. Yeah. I, I mean, it sounds like a trauma response. Totally. Yeah. And I've, I've never really had or known someone to go through that directly. My, um, my aunt actually had breast cancer, but she lived kind of far away. So I didn't really get to see the process. You know, I would see her every few months, but I didn't really see what she went through. And she actually didn't tell anyone for over a year that she even was going through cancer. So I was um, very blindsided and didn't, didn't even know what to expect. And how, who, who were the first people you told and how did those conversations go? What were their reactions? What was your support system like? Um, the first person was um, my husband. We were dating at the time. Um, I texted him and I was like, 
I think this is what I said. I think I said, all I said was it's cancer. And he like called me immediately. And I don't, I think I picked up the phone. I don't exactly remember. Um, but I know I just, I know at that point that I did go home and we kind of just cried together. (laughs) And then the, um, I told a couple of my close friends, um, I didn't want to tell my parents yet. Um, everyone has their own reasons, but, um, my mom and I are like really, really close. We're really good friends and I just didn't want to worry her. So, (laughs) and I didn't, I wanted it to be a hundred percent. I didn't want that 90%. I was like, you know, maybe they mixed up my files with someone still not accepting what was going on. Sure. Um, the other person that I reached out to, um, is someone actually that I, work with now is Katie Ledbetter. And I reached out to her because I remember her talking about how she went through cancer. And I was like, Hey, like what? I don't even know what to do. And, um, she was super supportive and she actually sent me like a really cute, um, care package. And, um, so that was really nice to be able to reach out to someone. Um, I'm, really not, or I wasn't at the time, a very open and emotional person. So it was really, really hard transition for me um, to reach out to people. And eventually after telling my parents um, how I kind of let everyone else know, because I didn't want to do it one by one or in a group text or whatever. I just posted my first chemo on Instagram on social media. And I was like, Hey, I'm going through this and wish me luck. And that's pretty much how I let the world know. Cause I just couldn't, I just, I don't even think that I really understood what I was going through still at that point. Yeah. I mean, and it's not like there's a script for these things. I know um, when I was first navigating chronic illness, I, had a really hard time figuring out how to talk to people about it as well, because, you know, I think there's that feeling of not wanting to like make them uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and uh, not wanting to be treated any differently. Um, But at the same time, really recognizing that you need that support system. So it's, it's complex on both ends. Um, Yeah. How did you decide on a course of treatment? Oh man, honestly, I was, this was really, really tough for me. Um, I spent a lot, thousands of dollars checking out holistic approaches, getting consultations, um, checking out low dose chemotherapies. They're more targeted to your specific um, treatment that you need, but none of this is covered by insurance. And at 26, I didn't have any funds. Um, and when I was looking through this process, I still hadn't told my parents. Um, and you know, I really didn't want them taking out loans or doing anything. Um, that just made me really sad to even think about that. So ultimately it was a money issue that brought me to do the conventional way of treatment. And because I didn't know anyone else that did any, any other way. And it was just kind of like, 
okay, you're just going to do the conventional way and that's what everyone's telling you to do and you're just going to follow the cows and see what happens. Um, and that was really, really scary because I come from this holistic background where, you know, we, I try to at least intermingle the two, but that wasn't an option yet. Um, I figured that out myself later, but um, in the beginning, um, that's pretty much the reason why I went the conventional route. And I don't think I would necessarily change that because it's kind of helped me become a better person and create other re or more re or resources in general for people who choose that same route because it's it's really not sustainable for the average person um, to go another route. Um, even with my cancer in particular um, wasn't projected at the time and it's not now to be a lifelong treatment, um, especially someone going through lifelong treatment, which is the case a lot of times in later stage cancers or as you get older, um, it just wouldn't be sustainable. So hopefully that can change in the future or we can have something like I did later on that I'm sure we'll talk about is kind of mesh the holistic and the conventional world together um, so that it's not just black and white. You can kind of mesh the worlds together. Yeah, absolutely. I think you bring up a really important point. Um, so many times these alternative treatments are just out of reach for people. I mean, you know, when I tell my story, part of it is that we actually lost a house paying for treatments. And that was because what was working for me was on the fringe, was alternative and was not covered by insurance. So it's really intense. And even the things that are covered by insurance, I mean, you still end up with a big fat bill at the end. I yeah. Mean, so it, <laughs> totally. it really adds up. And, and that's a whole dynamic of dealing with a serious illness that people don't even consider. I mean, the financial stress is, is crippling. And, you know, I, I know there could be a lot of guilt associated with that. And anyway, I just think it's really important that you bring, that you brought that up and that you, you know, are working to provide resources for the average person that may not necessarily be able to afford uh, a fully alternative route. So tell us about what the process of chemotherapy was like for you. Oh man. Well, if I could say it in two words, I could just say it sucked, <laughs> but um, the actual day of getting chemotherapy for my exact treatment, I mean, there's hundreds of different types of, well, there's actually thousands of different types of chemotherapies out there. And I received four different ones. Um, the acronym is AVBD. All, they all kind of stand for a different chemotherapy. So I'd have four different in, in infusions. Two were through um, a little vial or like a push vial, like syringe. That's the word I'm looking for. And um, two were on like a drip, like you normally see in like a in the Hollywood movies with the little, the drip hanging kind of like an IV bag. Um, and those will go for a few hours. Um, and then I was driving to San Francisco. So it was about an hour and a half to two hours to drive there for me. Um, so it was about an eight or nine hour day. So that in itself was really hard. Um, 
but I say it sucked. What does that actually mean? You know, so it sucked because every cancer facility that I've been to is bleak. It's quiet. It's lonely. Um, you know, even if you have someone with you, which I always did, thankfully, I have a really good support, really good support system. Um, even if you have someone with you, it's still like really hush hush. And um, for me personally, I was the youngest person by several, by two generations easily, you know? Um, and that was really, really tough for me to go through. And I actually did talk to some of my nurses about starting like a group chemo session, <laughs> but they kind of just laughed at me and just thought I was joking because that's kind of how I survived this whole process was making jokes and um, being funny. And um, I'm sure there's some legal stuff behind having a group chemo session, you know, someone getting the wrong dose or whatever, but still um, how I got through that a lot of that time uh, my mom is very much like me, very positive and upbeat. And she would always bring, um, she would come with me and my boyfriend would come with me um, every single time. I had some visitors, other visitors trickle in and out, but we'd always play board games. And that was really helpful for me. Um, the one we played most was Yahtzee. And so every time I think of Yahtzee, I think of those situations. Um, but it was, it made it, it did make it a lot better to get through the, the long days. Um, and immediately after I had received the four different treatments of chemotherapy, we would be on that long drive home. We'd usually stop and get something to eat. Um, but on the walk from the actual chemo chair that you'd sit in, um, to the car, you would feel very bloated, um, loopy, definitely you, you just feel like you're on some type of weird um, drug. Like you don't really you kind of feel like you're walking on a cloud, but you're really heavy at the same time. That's kind of the best way I can describe that super foggy head. Um, just don't want to talk because you're so, so tired. Um, I've never experienced this type of fatigue uh, in my life. Basically, as soon as we get in the car, I would bring my, eventually I learned to bring my neck pillow and I would just pass out and I would um, sleep most of the car right home. And I would get home and I would watch, before I started implementing some holistic practices that I implemented later and researched, I would get home, I would put on some Netflix I would take a little Epsom salt detox bath and then I would, I would go to bed and I would be out. That was probably like 6 PM and I'd be out the next day in and out. Um, mostly because of chemo side effects, hot flashes, um, were quite terrible. <laughs> um, I'd be in bed until about 12 or one the next day and then get up and sort of, try and do things. But um, treatment changed for me after I implemented some things. For example, um, I wasn't sleeping on the car ride home anymore. And that was huge because I was actually having conversations with my husband and my mom and maybe uh, my brother came or my dad came. And um, that made me feel better 
that they could see me feeling better, if that makes sense. But I should have been feeling worse because each chemotherapy treatment kind of brings it down a notch. Um, so then we would get home and then I would take my dog on a walk. The same day of chemotherapy, I would eat dinner with my family again. Um, I'd play, I got in, my husband is into video games, <laughs> computer games, and I was playing video games with him. And then I was Netflixing and I was, um, you know, kind of got into a more, quote, normal routine, which was, um, made me feel really, really good about myself. Um, so that was helpful. And then I was having more energy. So then I was able to move more. I wasn't in, stuck in bed as much. I was actually working out again. Nothing crazy. Um, nothing like training for competition, obviously, but mostly body weight, strength training, keep my strength up. Um, I lost about 25 pounds of muscle in uh, less than two months in the beginning. So I lost a lot of muscle mass, which was really, really hard for me because I worked about 10 years <laughs> to get to that point. Um, as anyone who goes through uh, a sport, well, no, it just doesn't happen overnight. And I wasn't a bodybuilding, so I don't want people to picture that I had like these huge protruding muscles. Um, but I definitely believe that because I had such great physical fitness that, um, dare I say that I went through chemo better than most people because of this, because I had that strength foundation. Um, who really knows, you know, we all handle these situations very differently, but, um, I definitely handled it better than I know a lot of people do. Um, a lot of that is obviously due to how young I was, but I was also taking my, myself, I was taking care of myself years before that. Um, and I actually have a lot of this um, process of going through my chemo treatments. I have it highlighted on my Instagram um, and it's called cancer part one. And I have a cancer part two because there's so many different stories on it highlighted. So um, if people want to check that out, then they can kind of see what I went through in the transitions and I really just because it's the person that I am I don't give a many snippets into more days where maybe I was crying all day just because of processing or whatever was happening it's more of kind of like it is the highlights I would say it is that is a good word for it um, but I do talk about kind of what I'm was going through and different things that I mentioned um, that I was going through earlier. So um, it's kind of interesting to go back and watch those myself. And I was like, wow, I mean, some of it hasn't even been a year yet. Um, so it's been, it's been a process. It's been a long journey. Yeah, it's still very fresh. Yeah. So the sort of second half of your treatment, where in theory you should have been feeling worse because of the cumulative effect of the chemo, mm -hmm. you actually started feeling better because you started to marry alternative theories, therapies and practices with the chemotherapy. So what specifically, because I know people will want to know, what specifically did you shift or change or were you doing 
that made that dramatic of a difference in how you were handling the chemo uh, in the last half versus the first half of your treatment? Yeah. So in, in the first half, um, I was on, I can't remember, it was either five or six different medications after I left um, chemo because they would give you uh, about, I would receive about five pills before I got my four chemo treatments. Um, They're just between steroids and antihistamines and stuff like that. And I, every single day in between treatments, I would also have pills to take to mitigate the side effects of chemotherapy. And for me, they didn't do jack shit. (laughs) Um, They really didn't do anything. And I was feeling really terrible. And I went through um, a month, a month of this. And I was like, there has to be something else. Like, I just don't understand why this is how we have to go through this. Um, Especially with my background in holistic nutrition, like I know that there's something that I could do. So I started, um, I think the first thing that I implemented was um, a friend slash mentor slash someone that I really looked up to was coming out with a book called Keto Quick Start. And she actually visited me in one of my treatment sessions and she brought this gift for me before it was released. And that was one of the first thing I did is I hundred percent changed my diet um, to go keto. I be, before this I had been reading research paper after testimony after research paper about how implementing a low carb keto diet was helping people not have chemo brain, um, having more energy, getting out of bed earlier, all these great side effects, I guess, from going keto, um, or I guess mitigating uh, the therapies from chemotherapy. So I noticed a huge shift with just that um, in about four days of going keto huge shift. Um, before that I could be having a conversation with someone and I would be mid sentence and not remember what I was saying, what I had said before or where I was going. And I would just be like, I'm really sorry, but I, I don't know what I was going to say. I guess it wasn't important was how I kind of scapegoated that. Um, so that was definitely the best thing that I implemented. Um, I also started doing acupuncture I was doing it before about once a month and I was talking to my acupuncturist and she, I was telling her that I was kind of having some detox effects from it and that would kind of put me in bed for a couple of days. And so she suggested that I come the day before um, treatment and the day after and um, coupled that with, I did, I, Trans went into keto at the same time and night and day. I mean, I can't even, it was, it was super, super, super helpful. Um, I was also doing other ways to help me sweat out toxins, not, so I have a type A personality where, you know, you go hard or go home. So not to that extent is kind of like where the sweet line is because you don't want to overdo anything. Um, but I was using 
um, saunas for about five to 10 minutes a few times a week, uh, especially following a chemotherapy treatment. Um, I mentioned I was doing Epsom salt baths with um, some nice essential oils in there to get some aromatherapy. And um, my mom got me a crystal infrared mat that I used to lay on. And it was kind of like the whole um, length of my whole body. And so I could get my body temperature up and kind of do um, an hour of detox every now and again. And that really helped. Um, And I think the next biggest thing that I probably should have mentioned earlier because I think it had such a big impact was I started using uh, CBD tinctures and THC. And I mentioned that I lost um, over 25 pounds earlier. And a lot of that is also due to the fact because I couldn't eat. I just wasn't eating. Nothing sounded good. Um, You're nauseous 24-7. And someone was like, hey, like, why don't you try having an edible? You know, just try to start it really small. And... um, you know, because I live in Northern California, I dabbled with it in, in previous times. And so I was like, wow, I can't believe I didn't think of that. And so I got this little, and it, it was legal at the time. So I went into a little shop and I, I felt really weird going there. I felt like I was doing something wrong. But I got um, a little edible and um, it was the most relieving effect that I didn't even notice that I'd felt so shitty before. Um, And that was definitely the cherry on top. So I would basically do CBD tincture kind of like throughout the day and THC. I would do it in the morning about, I started with like one milligram, which is a very, very small dose where you don't even actually um, get the psychedelic effect. It was kind of just take away my symptoms. And um, then I would do it at night before I went to bed. The hardest part was getting out of bed to take the THC to make me feel better. And I knew, God, as soon as you get that in your system, you're going to feel so much better. But getting from point A to point B was so hard um, that it would take me an hour or two to get out of bed to go get it, Um, which I should have just asked my husband to do it for me. But (laughs) um, (laughs) So, um, you know, everyone has their own opinions about it, but I cannot recommend the THC more than at least trying it because it had such a huge impact for me. Um, I stopped losing weight and I was able to maintain my weight and uh, that also contributed to me having more energy. And so I started doing all these things at the same time. So, um, you know, it's hard to say which one was, which one you should do. I think it's kind of like a cumulative lifestyle shift that I did all at the same time, um, to kind of make this alternative therapies and practices kind of work in conjunction. And I stopped cold Turkey taking all the pills that they gave me to take home. Um, and I never used them for the next five months. I didn't even touch them, didn't need them. Um, 
you know, and three of the pills were for the side effects of chemotherapy and two of the pills were for the side effects from the pills to, for the chemotherapy. So it was so empowering to get off that and know that I'm not putting that extra stress on my body to um, process those and detox those. And um, I did it just shifting a few things in my life and it made the world of a difference, the world. That's really amazing. I, I think, you know, recovering from any kind of serious illness, there is something really powerful about taking your power back in the ways that you can. And Mm -hmm. I think that there are some really, um, incredible mindset shifts that happen that are really advantageous for healing as a result of feeling like you have uh, some control over what's happening in some way. Um, Again, that sense of like just taking some of your power back and not feeling so victimized by the Mm -hmm. whole experience. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Nail on the head right there. So you talk on your website about discovering the root cause of the cancer. What was that root cause and how did you figure it out? So I had an inkling um, just because I, I had just been told so much, like, you're so young and healthy. What, you know, it's just bad luck <laughs> pretty much is what I was told. And I was like, I don't know. Like that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, I didn't have the genetic factors for it. So it was really confusing for me. And, um, actually through, um, um, Dr. Jolene Brighton, I follow her on Instagram and she, um, posted something about an integrative oncologist, blurbs about something. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And, um, cause I had been trying to find someone that I could kind of go to and, um, as long as along with my conventional oncologist. And so I, he was actually in LA and, um, he did specific testing for glyphosate amongst several other toxins, um, And so I ended up connecting with him and taking these tests. And there was about 16 toxins that he tested for um, via blood, stool, and urine. And one of those included glyphosate. And about a little over a third of all these toxins, I was um, in the over 80th percentile. Um, So very, very high. They want you to be in like the 11th percentile for a normal, quote, normal person. (laughs) Um, And I had this inkling to begin with because I have a direct exposure from glyphosate, um, which is the ingredient in Roundup, um, during an internship in college. And um, I brought this up to my oncologist, my quote, conventional oncologist and a few other doctors that I had was seeing and they didn't believe or didn't know of 
this test that I'd gotten done. So they kind of just were like, whatever. Um, so it was kind of disappointing that I couldn't help bridge, bridge that gap. gap. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also I was taking this test while I was in treatment. So I'm sure that the other toxins that I was high in were probably from chemotherapy because um, when I was having the consult with the, some of the other toxins, it was stuff like um, French fries or uh, gas fumes from like living in a city. And I, those are just two examples off the top of my head. And I wasn't eating French fries. I was eating keto <laughs> and um, I wasn't having fried foods at all. And I live not in a city at all. Um, I was actually living on an acre in a beautiful little farm town. So um, I'm sure the other ones had to do with chemotherapy, but it's glyphosate for sure um, was from a direct exposure. And um, that was when I was in college um, three years prior to that. And um, we didn't even wear gloves working with glyphosate. Uh, we put blue drops into this huge uh, barrel that fit into the back of a truck, put a few blue drops in there so we could see where we were spraying it. Um, and then we had five gallons, which is like 40 pounds of liquid, this liquid on our back. And we were spraying it without masks, without hazmat suits um, on invasive weed species to help the local um, wildflowers flourish in our area that were endangered. As you're talking about that, I'm just thinking of the fact that that seems to be a pretty common practice. I mean, I see landscapers out here all the mm -hmm. time, and and I know they're using Roundup yep. without any kind of protective gear. So, I mean, and that's just, it's a really powerful testimony to the toxicity of glyphosate that, you know, that exposure on that level, because it wasn't even for that long, right? It was like something like six months or something you were doing? Yeah, it was about six months, four times a week. And I mean, you know, that's nothing to com compare to someone who does it for a living. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, people need to, to really be, to really be aware of how, um, how toxic glyphosate really is. I mean, just to, to think that here you are only 26 being diagnosed. It's really intense. Okay. So you and your business partner, Katie Ledbetter, uh, developed a course for people navigating cancer called the Cancer Survivors Course. Uh, tell me a little bit about that course. What specific experiences from your own journey inspired it? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that she was one of the, actually the first people that I reached out to. Um, she's also a 21-day sugar detox coach so as, as well as I am. And so, um, that's kind of how I heard about her story and, you know, following her through social media. Um, she's also went to the same holistic nutrition college that I did, but just several years before. So we, we have the same foundation funnily enough of, of almost everything. Um, and she was diagnosed with, um, breast cancer at 31. So she's also a young, um, cancer survivor. She went through chemo and radiation. Um, she's now five years free. So congrats for her. And um, we, 
she was seeing what I was doing over Instagram before we had got together. And she was like, holy crap, like you're doing exactly what I did. And, and um, we each on our own, were already starting to work on creating resources for other people to kind of um, create a, a niche for our practice. And um, she was like, we need to do this together. Like this is, this is crazy. And so that's kind of how we de- started developing our course together. And it actually took, um, took about a year. Um, that's how big and robust and well-researched this whole program that we created is. Um, it's 12 modules. There's over 25 handouts. There's several video demonstrations of um, different movement exercises um, between yoga on Katie's side and strength training on my side. And um, we have live monthly calls and it's self-paced. So it's kind of open enrollment all the time because people don't just get cancer diagnosed in January and June. So we want to make sure that it's available for everyone and that it's self-paced so you can be in your PJs at home, relaxing, taking care of yourself, like we suggest to in the course. And um, you're a member for life as we continue to update um, as new things come out, or we want to make sure that you get some vital information. Um, We also have live monthly calls for questions or just going over a specific module each month. Um, So we spent a, I actually started working on this um, about a month into my treatment. Um, So it was, it was a a great collaboration that we did together. Learning and writing and researching um, it's basically everything that we wish that we had um, going through conventional treatment to mitigate side effects using holistic approaches. And each module is different in that we talk about, we come from this holistic approach, right? So it's not just about food and movement, but it's about how your skin might be affected and what to do. Your sleep is definitely going to be affected what you can do, um, specific organ support, because I mean, right off the bat, we know our liver is really, really burdened here. Um, a lot of chemotherapies actually 10, 20 years from after treatment, like one of the ones I received can actually, um, cause liver cancer. So we want to make sure that we're not getting a second cancer, um, from those chemos, stuff like that. Um, we also have an entire module devoted to supplemental support. So stuff that didn't fit in the other 11 modules is kind of where we just put everything together. Um, And we created something that a cancer patient or a survivor or a caretaker can do to take back their health, just like Katie and I did. And um, that's really the hardest thing in the beginning was not being able for me to do something outside of getting chemotherapy, going home, feeling miserable, taking pills, feeling sicker, repeat day in and day out. Like that's not a way that I would want anyone to live. So what can we do to make this a less shitty process? So it is, it's possible. And 
I've mentioned already several things that I've done and that I now teach. Of course, everyone experiences different. I got um, chemotherapy uh, biweekly and uh, Katie, I believe, got it monthly. Some people get it weekly. It's very different. And that's why, again, it's self-paced. So you can kind of go throughout your own flow. And everyone also has different outlooks on the process. Um, We all process things differently. I mentioned I always made jokes and was being silly about it as my way of processing. Um, Some people are much more serious, obviously, which any way of of coping is is okay. But we also talk about um, mindset and better ways to cope, um, to ask for help. That was really, really hard for me, um, but it made a huge difference. And the bottom line is we want to give you all of these things in a nice, pretty package with a bow on top to help you mitigate at least the side effects drastically and help you do the things that make you feel like you again. And that's the ultimate goal of the whole program. That's really incredible. And, you know, just to let everybody know, I've sorted through this program a little bit myself, just researching for the podcast. It's absolutely as robust as Alyssa has (laughs) shared. And I think the price point is really accessible. So I think it would be a wonderful thing for anyone going through cancer um, to utilize. And it could even be uh, a a nice gift for someone Mm -hmm. in your life experiencing cancer. Okay. Shifting gears a little bit, a fertility specialist at UCSF gave you a really dismal chance of conceiving after your cancer treatment. Walk us through what you were told by that specialist and just kind of what went through your mind at that time. That was definitely one of the hardest conversations. That was almost harder than actually being told that I had cancer. Um, I've grown up my entire life in an infant daycare that my mom does and I've been surrounded by babies and I've always wanted a big family my whole life. That's always been something that it's, it's been like a life goal for me to have a family. And so when I was told that I wasn't going to have children, I actually didn't even tell anyone. I was in so much shock. Um, my whole um, time going through chemotherapy, just my husband knew, and we didn't tell anyone else. Um, mostly I didn't tell anyone. He's, he's, uh, he's a good secret keeper. So it was just me not letting that book open. Um, before treatment started, I got a bunch of testing done and they, he basically said that I, at that point in my life at 26, I only had 30% or less than the eggs that I should have at that point in my life um, compared to a quote unquote healthy, not even, not even someone going through cancer because that didn't affect it at this point. Um, Just for my age that having only 30% at 26, what the, they were not going to make it through chemotherapy. And that's because chemo doesn't harm the chemos that I went through 
don't harm your uterus. But once the eggs leave and go to in one of the four developmental stages um, before possibly being fertilized, they are destroyed then by the chemotherapy because they're not protected by the uterus. Um, and when they're destroyed, your uterus pumps out more eggs very quickly. You know, it's a process that we don't even know that's happening. And they're always pumping out more eggs because the chemo is constantly destroying them um, because they're a fast-growing cell. So anything that is a fast-growing cell is going to be destroyed through chemotherapy. That's also why your skin kind of gets messed up, your hair falls out. These are all fast-growing cells. So if I'm understanding that correctly, then chemotherapy is actually depleting your ovarian reserve. Correct. Okay. Wow. I wasn't even aware of that. That's really fascinating. Right. And um, the little cherry on top here is that nothing fertility, at least through my insurance, I didn't research other insurances, nothing fertility related is covered by your insurance. So I could have possibly done egg preservation, which is a lot of money. And at this point, I wasn't telling anyone that I was even um, about to start chemotherapy yet. I haven't even told my parents. And um, my oncologist also, on top of that, didn't want me to push back starting my treatment um, because it was aggressive, the chemo. The chemo. So um, she, I mean, I'm sure it's my body. I could have eventually done if I wanted to do that, but it just at the time, it just wasn't an option. Um, and it was such in fight or flight mode is you're just kind of agreeing with everyone. Okay, that's the right decision. Let's just go. And not really, we need a, this is what we need, million dollar idea. We need a doula for cancer patients. Oh, <laughs> that's absolutely. what we need. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's not covered by insurance. Basically, it's a luxury, a luxury to have fertility I guess, even though the drugs that they give us are what causes infertility and it's a really terrible loophole. And, um, it definitely was the heart, one of the hardest conversations I've ever had in my life. Sure. Yeah, definitely a loophole since they don't have a problem prescribing for other side effects effects of the side effects. (laughs) Okay. So the fertility specialist was wrong. Thank God, because not only did you go on to conceive, but you conceived, was it six months? Four. Four months. Four months. Four months after finishing chemotherapy. So bring us to that moment when you find out you're pregnant. What was that like? Yeah, so I had this testing done again um, where they check out your egg reserves post-treatment and... I was told the same thing um, that it just wasn't in the cards for me. And yet four months later uh, we got pregnant. (laughs) Um, It was shocking. And I, I guess how I process things is I didn't believe it. Um, Kind of like when I was diagnosed with cancer, I just didn't believe it. And I was just kind of like, Oh no, there there's must've messed up my results with someone else. Um, But I actually, uh, maybe my just my hormones going crazy or something weird. I just didn't think it was real, but 
damn, my breasts were a damn giveaway. <laughs> That's for sure. Like they were just, um, they were telling me that I was pregnant pretty much. Um, they're very sensitive. And actually, so I was like, this is kind of a sensation I've never felt before. It's kind of weird. Um, and I wasn't sure if it was maybe a side effect of um, being put into menopause while going through um, treatment. Oh, sure. Um, so, you know, especially four months after, you're expected to have side effects from at least a year after um, for some things. Some things you don't really think about. Um, some things last forever if you have neuropathy, for example, um, which I didn't. But I ended up taking um, a pregnancy test on my mom's birthday, and it was positive. And I was like, what? Like, this has to be from something. But thinking about it now, um, even if it was from being in, menop in menopause, it wouldn't make sense because it would actually be the opposite hormone-wise. But um, I didn't know all this at the time. So it was um, shocking, I think is the best way to describe it. And actually thinking about it right now, I found out on my mom's birthday, I mentioned my mom is like my best friend. We're actually naming her after my mom's middle name, um, Lorraine. So her name is Lorraine and we're calling her Rain for short. So she's our little rainbow baby, <laughs> our little miracle baby. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so what was your oncologist's reaction to the pregnancy? She was just as shocked, um, which was funny to me, I guess. She, but her first words that she said to us were, I am so happy for you. And, um, but then she proceeded to go down the path, a very, very dismal path, <laughs> might I add, of what could happen if the cancer came back while I was pregnant. Um, because the highest chance of cancer coming back is the first two years. Um, and I was only four months post my last treatment at that time. Well, I was probably a month later. So it was probably five months when I went in to see her. Um, another kind of interesting that she asked me that I thought was weird is she asked if I was having a section a c-section and she was shocked when I said no and I never fully quite understood what that meant <laughs> I don't know but it was just really really weird to me but those were basically her first reactions and she was like oh you're not gonna have a c-section I don't know if it's I, I don't know I'm not sure where the background is on that I have a few ideas, but I don't really know. I, ne I didn't ask. I think it was kind of like a ball of shock, all of us. Right. <laughs> I had let her know ahead of time through, um, you communicate through an online portal with your oncologist and nurses. So I'd let her know ahead of time. So she had time to process that I had told her that I was pregnant. Um, so I'm not exactly sure, but it was, um, it was like bittersweet. You know, she was like, I'm so happy for you. But if it comes back, you're going to have to have, we're going to have to, we're going to have to make you have a C-section, have your baby as early as possible. And you're going to have to still be on chemo. You're going to, we're going to put you on a quote, safe chemotherapy while you're pregnant until you can give, uh, until you can have a C-section birth. Um, 
which sounds completely terrible going through chemotherapy. Your body cannot heal itself um, efficiently at all while going through any type of chemotherapy is what I'm thinking in my head, like, oh my God. Um, So then I kind of went into oh shit mode. Like before I was like shock, shock happy. And I'm like shock, oh shit. (laughs) That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you've talked about how, especially as a nutrition practitioner, your vision for pregnancy was very different. You know, you knew the importance of uh, preconception nutrition and just really taking that time to be intentional with getting your, you know, self physically to an optimal place before conceiving. So, you know, here you are thinking that you're going to go in and have a very intentional pregnancy when it's time. And instead you're completely flying by the seat of your pants four months after you finish chemotherapy. Yeah. And I feel like every crazy thing that's happened in my life is like a, my life. I feel like my life lesson is to be like, stop controlling things because it's not going to happen the way you want it to. <laughs> um, pretty much every single thing, you know, I wanted to be uh, a world athlete and then I lost all of my muscle mass and had to go through chemotherapy. I, um, for example, so um, this is just another example of that. <laughs> Life yeah. lesson. I feel like, gosh, I've gone through this so many times. You think I would learn just to expect the unexpected. Right. Yeah, I absolutely relate. I think going through my own chronic illness journey, it just requires such intense surrender just over and over again. And, you know, the moment you think you have control, all of a sudden you're shown again that, that you really don't. And of course, there are certain ways, you know, I think that we can invite like, again, I like to use the word taking your power back versus Mm -hmm. control, because I think that's a little bit different. I think you can be, you know, steadfast in your own personal power while still accepting the fact that at the end of the day, you know, you're not running this show. Right. So how was the first trimester for you? And how was it made different because you had so recently finished chemotherapy? Yeah, so I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but it was scary. It was really, really scary, um, especially after having that conversation with my oncologist. Um, and because it was f- so full of so many unknowns, um, she they hadn't had very many patients do what I was doing. So there, there wasn't much for me to kind of look into. Um, but I immediately made an appointment after I took that pregnancy test. I took like four pregnancy tests, by the way. <laughs> and um, they actually wouldn't see me until I was six to seven. I don't remember if I was six weeks or seven weeks um, to do a confirmation ultrasound. And they probably could have done it sooner if I would have told them what I was going through. But I was so choked up on the phone to ask for that, that I just couldn't say what I was wanting to say. So I was just, I waited (laughs) and that was very, very hard to do. Um, when we went in was the next challenging thing because 
this was the first time that I had to fill out a form that marked me as a cancer patient. And then I, then when we were going through the form and saying that out loud was really, really tough. And, um, I was trying, I was trying to say why I was there and the tests that we could have done, um, because of the chemotherapy, we wanted to make sure that, you know, the egg fertilized wasn't a damp, one of those damaged eggs. Um, because I wasn't, I didn't even know that there was any in there. So, um, we did get, um, what is called knuckle transluce. Uh, I can't say that word. We got some blood tests done and we got a fetal anatomy scan translucency and a blood test. Um, I was about eight or nine weeks and, um, which was kind of cool because that blood test, that specific blood test was checking for abnormal chromosomes. So we also got to find out the gender at about nine weeks, which is kind of cool. Nice. Um, I don't know how people can wait to 20 weeks, <laughs> oh, but um, I was actually leaving on a cross country road trip with my girlfriend um, when I was 10 weeks pregnant. And um, that whole time we were waiting for the test results. It's, it's not conclusive, but it's, um, it's just not conclusive. It has like, I can't remember if it was 80 or 90% accuracy. Um, but if you want something conclusive, it's very invasive and actually can lead to miscarriage. So we didn't want to do that. We just kind of wanted to know what was going on. Um, and there was some really bad back and forth, um, because we should have found out less than a week after I got this test done when I would have been home with my husband about these tests. and. I didn't, we'd already delayed, um, the road trip with my girlfriend. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I did that because that was something that was really, um, giving me some positive things to look forward to. And it wasn't until two days before I came home, um, and I was gone for five and a half weeks, <laughs> two days before I came home, I finally got a phone call saying that the test was, all the test results came back um, negative for any, um, abnormalities that they could see at that point in time. I also did that in the second trimester and everything came back good as well. So they're like, you don't even need to do the third trimester. So that's a happy ending, but it was very hard in the first trimester. Um, and we still didn't, the only person that we told was the girlfriend that I was going on the road trip with because I mean, she should know. <laughs> and well, I think personally. And um, so that was also, it was kind of nice to be away from everyone during that time while we were waiting for these results to know how to, what to say and, and do. But the first trimester was, um, it was scary. And I think being on the road trip, I'm not sure if this was a good way of coping or not, but it kept me distracted and it was super helpful um, for me to kind of wrap my head around what was happening. And I even, I bought some books to read about pregnancy and parenting and like all these things that I didn't think that I was going to be able to do. And so that was, it was almost like therapeutic process at the same time. It was just like, oh my God. <laughs> 
it was crazy. It was a crazy first trimester. I actually wrote a blog post on it. Um, my first trimester recap, something like that on my blog, um, with more information, you know, I have pregnancy brain right now, so I'm probably missing some funny detail, but <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed reading that post. It was just a whirlwind and, and you really did a great job of taking us into your headspace during that time. So how far along are you now? I am eight months today. Wow. You're getting into the home stretch. Yeah. Um, I'm due April 26th. So exciting. Yeah. How would you say that your outlook has changed or shifted throughout the course of your pregnancy? I mean, it couldn't be farther from night and day. That first trimester, I was so worried um, about that conversation that I had with my oncologist. Um, you know, that's, and that's their job is to be blunt about what is going to happen. It takes a very special person to have that job. Um, and not then I was also going through my mind like, okay, I just went through one of the most traumatic things that you can put your body through and now I'm going to do that again. And I was so scared that my body wasn't going to be able to handle that. And um, it was r- some really, really dark thoughts. And now those thoughts honestly don't even, don't even cross my mind. And I still can't believe that I get to walk this path of motherhood. and you know, sometimes I cry because I'm so happy about it. And it's been really weird because I was never an emotional person before diagnosis. So it's still hard for me to um, show it and kind of, that's why, you know, writing it out is a little bit easier for me sometimes. Um, It's, you know, it's a work in progress with my emotions, but it's been, I mean, I, I think I have every right to, it's been, it's been a roller coaster, but it's definitely shifted so much. And, um, I'm very thankful for the mindset work that I did going through treatment, um, that we do teach in the cancer survivors course as well. Um, cause that really helps kind of prepare me and kind of wrap my head around, you can do this. And, yeah, of course I can do this. I've I've gone through some crazy shit. That doesn't mean that something else bad is going to happen. Um, it is always on the back burner of like, will it come back? Will a second cancer come back because of the treatments in the beginning? Um, but it's not something that really kind of gets to me anymore. Um, and it's been... Uh, it's been the best blessing of my life. That's amazing. Uh, I'm so thrilled that you're getting to have this experience. And, you know, I know I found personally, um, excuse me, my pregnancy that occurred after um, my experience with serious illness was actually very empowering it was showing me how strong and capable my body really was. And uh, the birth was very much a um, 
very much underscored that as well. And I think that's such a gift for those of us that have gone through this experience of, you know, in some ways almost feeling like your body has betrayed you um, and feeling, you know, (laughs) the extreme limitations of the physical form in a way that a lot of people may never experience in their lives. Pregnancy and birth um, can really just almost bring you like the the polar effect, right? And and it's so deeply empowering and shows you um, on such a significant level, like what your body is really capable of. Yeah, that's, that is so true. Um, you know, it's such a mindset shift and <clears throat> I mean, there's no other, you described it so beautifully. There's just really it's, it's so different. Like if I would have had, if I would have gone through pregnancy and childbirth before, I think I would have just been going through the motions and not really appreciating and really understanding what was happening to my body um, or really kind of digging into it. And let me tell you, (laughs) all my free time is devoted to learning as much as I can um, about having a successful birth and if it that doesn't happen then it's okay too and i you know there's other interventions that might need to happen and um i don't think my mindset would have been there before so going like you said um going through something it i mean it, i don't know cliche to say but it makes you a better version of yourself it really does yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many gifts that come through an experience like that. Okay, so this is a lighter question. <laughs> what about food cravings and aversions? You know, it's been kind of boring. And and that was also kind of scary for me in the first trimester because I was like, um, like, is this I, then I was like, is this, is this really, is this really me? Is there still something growing inside of me? Because I wasn't having these crazy side effects. Uh, one of my best friends was four months ahead of me. And so I was kind of com- in the beginning, I was comparing myself to her experience, um, which I don't recommend anyone to do um, at any point in their pregnancy, because we're all, our bodies are all built differently and they're going to handle things differently. But I did crave salad in my first trimester. I could not eat enough greens, um, which is, I don't know, it was weird and also sour things. Um, but it wasn't a craving that I was like ravenous about. I was just like, Oh, like I could eat a salad three days, three times a day, like seven cups each time. (laughs) Um, otherwise, um, fruit has been, like my through my whole pregnancy first trimester to now my mouth is just watering actually thinking about fruit um I could just eat that and be super happy but I won't because I'm a nutritionist I know we need a balanced diet (laughs) (laughs) but um as far as aversions go I didn't have protein aversions um which I thought was interesting because from all my friends that I have, have gone through pregnancy before they were all just like, Oh, even the smell of it or thinking about it made them want to vomit or they did vomit. And, um, I just, 
I never got that. So I was pretty thankful. Um, I just kind of didn't want food in general until about 30 weeks. Um, so that was kind of hard um, because I wasn't gaining weight on their trajectory and they're kind of worried about that. But um, I then last, don't worry because in two, my last appointment in two weeks, I gained eight pounds. <laughs> so <laughs> um, she did, she did have a huge growth spurt. Like I could not, um, I could easily put a sweatshirt on and you couldn't tell I was pregnant at 28 weeks at 30 weeks hit. It was like, Oh no, that girl, that is not a food baby. That is a real baby in there. Um, so it's also been kind of fun, but um, Oh, another a huge. Okay. This is a big aversion, which is weird beer. I couldn't stand the smell of it. And um, my husband is a beer drinker and I was like, take it outside. Like I could not, it was making me very nauseous. Um, and I've never, I'm, I've never been a beer drinker. I've never enjoyed the taste of it. Um, but I thought that was kind of interesting, a little different that I haven't heard before. Yeah, actually, that's funny. With my first pregnancy with my daughter, my husband was into brewing at the time. And I remember coming home from work one day and we lived in Chicago then in a kind of a I don't know, smaller walk-up apartment. And he had like all the brew gear going in the house. I mean, you could smell it from outside. <laughs> like I absolutely cannot step foot in this house until all of this is gone. Yes. I feel that on a very deep level. I was like, <laughs> please no. Right. So I've seen you still doing a lot of lifting heavy on Instagram. What does your fitness routine look like at this point? Yeah, that's been, um, it's been pretty fun to get back and lift some weight post treatment. Um, I'm still doing some, still doing strength training. Um, I stopped doing Olympic weightlifting this past, past December at 22 weeks and that was mostly just because my bar path was um, getting bumped by my little belly. <laughs> and um, if anyone knows anything about snatching or clean and jerking, you don't want to mess your bar path up because it took me years um, to develop um, good form and something that I was proud of. So um, now I mostly just do powerlifting stuff. Um, I do a lot of deadlifting, squatting. I'll do with a barbell and then I'll do kettlebell stuff, dumbbell stuff, dumbbell bench press, um, incline now. And um, my body has naturally, I'll be working up to a weight and my body's like, okay, that's, that's enough for today. And that's also been really cool to see my body is just like, nope, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to do an extra five pounds. And one week it'll be 25 pounds less. And the next week it'll be five pounds more. And um, so that's been really fun to kind of play around with. Um, but I've also been doing, looking into helping out my pelvic floor a bunch, um, which I don't think is talked about enough. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. None. <laughs> None. Yeah. Um, only when you actually are actively looking for it will you find it. Yeah. After, um, after injury, I think, is usually when women discover the information that they should have had during pregnancy. Right. Um, so I'm lucky that at a different point in my life, I was, I was always listening and looking for um, different pregnancy, post-pregnancy labor resources. And so I kind of have been able to rack my brain and come back to those resources. Um, and I also, through being a personal trainer, I've taken what's called dynamic neuro- neuromuscular stabilization courses, um, also called DNS. And that's very, that's kind of uh, in sync with the pelvic floor and where you want your whole core to be breathing while you're doing exercises or movements instead of just that uh, top of our chest breathing, which we kind of set into just breathing um, like our breastbones and up and not getting down into our core. But then it's not just the uh, top of your abdomen. You want your sides to to be going in and out. You want your back. Um, and it's really freaking hard. <laughs> it takes a lot of practice. Um, and then I actually had started doing that um, before this whole um, cancer process. So I have a little, but it's still hard Um, to get certified takes like three to five years. Wow. So um, it's a very um, hard process, but it kind of connects your breathing with your pelvic floor and how to move together. And, you know, you inhale, your ribs expand, your back expands, release the pelvic floor and the opposite when you come up. Um, and that's been super helpful um, because I started sneezing and a little bit of pee would come out. <laughs> and I was like, uh, what? And my girlfriend that I lift with, she was like, oh yeah, prepare to pee yourself when you lift heavy after giving birth. And I'm like, that's not, no, I'm not looking forward to that. Like that's not, something um, that we should have to go through. So then that kind of led me onto this path of learning about the pelvic floor. And I'd I'd never even really heard of it before. Um, So that's been, and I no longer pee my pants. (laughs) (laughs) That is, that is such a a key point that you bring up. And I, I think so many women do resign themselves to it. Like, Oh, ha ha. That's this, you know, funny, goofy part of motherhood. But there's absolutely work that you can do to specifically strengthen that pelvic floor. And it's vitally important to your overall abdominal health um, that you do it. So I always tell women like that first time that you sneeze and a little pee comes out, that's the time to start working on that pelvic floor connection. Right. And it's not just Kegels, people. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's kind of missing the point, but that's, that's, that's the part that's talked about. Yes. Um, I mean, we could, that's a whole nother can of worms. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> excuse me, other things. Um, I've actually been walking a lot more. I've been walking my little dog. Um, we have a big dog, but he's a great Pyrenees. And um, he was, when we were living on the farm, you know, he was a ranch dog and we didn't really train him too well to walk on a leash. And so he kind of pulls me a little bit and I was noticing a little bit of strain 
um, in my abdominals. So I just, I don't walk him anymore. My husband walks him. So I just walk my little guy. He's a Yorkie mix. So he's like nine pounds. Um, and he's crazy smart, but, um, and I've also been working with a doula, which I think is one of the best things that I've ever put money into. Um, just with her knowledge and resource. And she has a background in um, something called spinning babies, which I would highly recommend to pregnant people. Um, So I do some work with these um, scarves made from Mexico called rebozos and, and different exercises and inversions. And um, I've had a really smooth, um, pregnancy so far and like her positioning um has been fabulous um and I also see um what is it called prenatal chiropractor that's what I'm looking for um and that's been super helpful in making sure that um my pelvis is aligned as well with all this other muscular work that I'm doing to make sure that my bones are kind of going in the same route that we want them to um, and it's a really cool place that I go to. Um, it's called Acorn Chiropractic Care, and they have a membership option. So you just pay like one month fee and you go in as much as you want. And I had really, really bad um, back pain where I was in bed for four days in my second trimester before I learned about all these um, things with my doula. And uh, I went to go see them and my first appointment and I was able to move around again. So it was super helpful to have someone knowledgeable in a woman's body while it's changing every day going through pregnancy. So that was, um, I would put that in as part of my fitness routine because I, I need them to go together. Absolutely. And for those listening that are thinking they could use a prenatal chiropractor, uh, what you can search for is Webster certified chiropractor. There's something called yes. the Webster method that is specific for prenatal care. And as Alyssa said, it really does make an incredible difference if you're dealing with any kind of uh, pregnancy related pain. I know with my first, and I, I think this is something that's interesting. I think with with people that tend to have a naturally more muscular build, a first pregnancy can be really challenging uh, to the musculoskeletal system because it's sort of like fighting against all of this intense structure to expand. And that can come with a lot of aches and pains. Now here I am on pregnancy number three. It's moving a little easier. <laughs> Your body's like, we got uh, this. <laughs> yeah, been broken down by the end. <laughs> Um, but in my first pregnancy, I also had really crippling back pain and pelvic pain to the point where I almost couldn't walk properly. And, uh, I thought that was just something I had to deal with until (laughs) someone recommended that I find a chiropractor certified in Webster method. So I think that's an excellent resource for anybody experiencing that. Yeah. I think kind of the overarching theme is you don't have to go through this. Like there's something to mitigate this pain you're going through, um, whether that was through some chemotherapy stuff or some pregnancy stuff. That's kind of been the reoccurring theme for me as well. Absolutely. So what is one piece of advice that you would give to someone who is experiencing pregnancy after chemotherapy? 
Oh man. Um, first off, please reach out to me, please. I have not found someone on this path, um, to connect with yet. And, um, I have friends all over the world who went through the same treatment that I have. And I have a rare, um, almost one in a million cancer diagnosis. And I've found several people that I'm still in connection with, but I have, haven't found anyone, um, who's going through pregnancy after chemotherapy, whether that's four months like me or two years or whatever. But the, I think the advice that I would give is that, and I will say this to myself as well, that it's okay to cry and it's okay to happy cry because life is happening. It's okay to sad cry because the future is scary. We don't know what's going to happen or, you know, maybe you're still grieving your old life, which the, the healing process doesn't happen overnight or six months or six years. Um, it's, it's a lifetime of work. So, and no one's going to understand this. So my main point here is to relax and to take care of yourself more than you want to. Don't let other people and them asking when you're gonna when are you gonna get back to doing this or do that or add more work hours. I've had all of those comments, and in the beginning, it um, made me feel like, you know, I wasn't do I wasn't getting back to normal. Um, but there's nothing to go back to. I'm I'm I, you know I've come out a different person, and also to learn to set boundaries for this reason alone which is much easier said than done for most of us um, because I love talking to people and making connections. I have a really hard time setting boundaries. I'm a yes person, but it's again, it's all about self-care and it's not selfish. So you're, you know, you beat cancer, you're already however in a million and now you're pregnant. Now you're in however several million, if not, you know, a greater percentage um, out there. So know that you're, you know, that you're not alone. And where can people find you? Yeah. On my website is alyssacarry.com and my Instagram is where I'm most, um, active, mostly on stories post every now and again, but it's alyssacarry.wellness. Um, my name is spelt A L Y S S A C A R R I E. Um, and you can also, it's, um, the, the cancer resource is cancer survivors with an S course.com. If you want to check that out, um, there's also links to it through my website. And, um, I mentioned my aunt earlier, she created, she's passed away, but she created a business called soul light cards and you can check them out on Facebook and they send, um, her sister-in-law took it over when she, my aunt passed away. They send out cards to someone going through chemotherapy. So if you'd like a card sent to you, um, just message them on Facebook. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Alyssa, for taking the time to just really share your story in depth. I think it's just such a powerful story. And, uh, I really feel honored and privileged that you were able to speak with me and share it with everybody today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. And, um, I choked up a few times, but I got through it.
And um, again, thank you so much. This is, it's definitely a conversation um, that's getting easier for me to talk about. Um, And I love talking about it because it helps other people. So again, anyone feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to, to chat with anyone. 